mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting In Work, episode 141 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining me this week, we have Molly Bittner, spacecraft engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. That's right, we have a literal rocket scientist, although she will tell you otherwise as we go into some of the specifics about why that label is not correct. But hey, I'm claiming it. I've got a rocket scientist on the Putting In Work podcast and I'm pretty happy about it. Um, Molly is someone that is a mutual follower on Twitter. We we cross paths as part of the gaming communities we're both in. But once I realized what she did for a living, I really thought I had to get her on the podcast and talk about what it's like just to work at NASA, just to be one of these world leaders in an amazing industry that's doing crazy stuff that I can't even wrap my head around, really. It'll become pretty obvious as the podcast goes that I'm not a scientific astronomical mind, and I let Molly do all the explanations about what it is exactly she does. I won't do that here like I usually do with my intros, but I will say that she is currently part of the uh, Europa Clipper project, which is a mission that's going to be finding out if conditions on Jupiter's icy moon are right for life. Very cool. And previously, she's worked on uh, the mission to Saturn and its moons and has also worked at Airbus Space, I believe, over in Europe before returning to the US earlier this year. But just before we get to Molly and her story about how she ended up at NASA and what it's like to work there, I wanted to plug my PAX panel, which is coming up very soon. It's going to be PAX Online in lieu of the usual conventions. PAX is going all on Twitch this year. So I'm hosting a panel with two great voice actors, Yuri Lowenthal and Jennifer Hale. You might know them as Spider-Man and Commander Shepard, respectively, but they've both played like a million amazing voice actor roles. And they're definitely some of the most prolific, hardworking and talented in the industry. So it's going to be a great double interview there with the two of them talking about how their performances help bring game icons to life, not just in voice acting, but also in motion capture, in the way that those art forms work with the designers and the developers to create these really amazing narratives we have in modern video games. So if you're an Australian listener, that will be on the 19th of September at 3.30 p.m. If you're in the US, I know the Pacific time zone, it's, uh, I believe, 10.30 p.m. on the 18th of September. I will also be slotting that audio into this podcast feed if you miss it so you can at least hear what Yuri and Jennifer had to say. But that's it for the plugs. For now, you can hear from Molly all about being a spacecraft engineer over at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Enjoy the show. Molly, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's all right. It's um, strange times, but it's always good to touch base with someone in another country and see how things are going on the other side of the world it's it, we we all share this crazy time together unfortunately or unfortunately yeah, <laughs> totally well thank goodness for technology and the fact that you know we can talk to each other from across the world with all this so that's it's good news mm, yeah so tell me a little bit about your title and what it involves as far as your role with nasa so i currently work at nasa's jet propulsion laboratory it's located in Pasadena, California, and my current role is an autonomy and fault protection engineer. Mm. And basically, that means that um, myself and people like me design the things that keep the spacecraft safe 
So whether that's hardware, redundancy, or software design. So one of the examples that I give um, on your laptop when it comes up with a warning uh, that your battery's low, mm-hmm. that's sort of fall protection. It's telling you to plug it in. And the autonomy part of that is that the spacecraft can act on its own to correct those faults. So we design everything around that. Um, And then the current project I'm working on is Europa Clipper. It's a spacecraft that's going to launch in 2024 and go to Jupiter's moon Europa. It'll orbit around Jupiter and do flybys of Europa and study Europa mostly, but the rest of the Jupiter system as well. Wow. Crazy. There's a lot to unpack just in that alone. But yeah. I thought maybe we'd get all the COVID stuff out of the way first. I wonder how it is working at a place like that with the pandemic going on. Like, are you even able to work from home? It seems like such a process of collaboration that it would be really difficult to be so technical and and distanced at the same time, right? It definitely is difficult, but I am full-time, 100% at home. Mm. So we are currently in the design phase. There are some people on lab on my project that are building hardware right now, and they do have to go into lab to build that hardware and test that hardware. And I could potentially have to go into lab sometime in the future to do the same. But right now, everything that I do is from my home, Mm. meeting with people like I'm meeting with you now um, and doing design work on my computer. Um, There are other projects that are in, for example, the operations phase, and they have to operate spacecrafts that are flying around in space right now. And they, of course, have to go in lab for that. And then there are other projects as well that are currently building hardware, and you have to be in person for that. Um, But for my job, um, even when we're at the point when we're building lots of hardware, I I have more of a management-y leadership type job where I will go in sometimes to check on things. And if I'm running tests, I have to check on things Mm. and manage tests. But a lot of the work I do can be done from home. Yeah, cool. Of course, I would like to be there in person to collaborate <laughs> with people. Like you said, it's a technical job that um, is really helpful to look at people and interact with people. But, you know, we're making it work. Mm. Now, that's really interesting. And I, I'm going to apologize to our listeners for my lack of scientific fun- foundational fundamental understanding because I'm very much not like I'm left brained or whatever it is. I'm more of the, I guess, creative and writing kind of thing. I failed chemistry in year 11. So that said, I'm going to try and understand what you do and ask questions that people want to hear about, but we'll just see how we go. And I'll do my best to break it down. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I'm sure that you're probably used to that with uh, friends and family and whatnot anyway. Yes, totally. Okay, so we might take it back to school and that kind of thing. Did you always have an interest in, I guess, space and astronomy and the kinds of like work that you're doing now? Did you have a a dream to work for NASA? So I thought NASA was always very cool. And I remember going to visit, I grew up in Georgia, so I remember going to the NASA Center in Florida as a kid and really loving it. But for me, that was way too far off that I, you know, kids these days are all like, I want to work for NASA. For me, it was just way too far off and that didn't even seem possible. So it's never even something that occurred to me. Um, I also, I don't know if I was really super interested in space, but I loved building things. So I'm an engineer, right? So sometimes people think that because I work for NASA and because I work in the space industry that I know everything about space, that they can point in the sky and say, what's that star? And I'll know it. And I do not know every star in the sky. Um, I don't even know some basic 
questions about like the constituents of the planets, right? Mm-hmm. I, I know how to design spacecrafts because that's what I do. Um, and as a kid, I really liked building things. So I loved Lego as a kid. I had whole towns of Lego spaceships and Lego um, cars and everything. So that's what I loved doing as a kid. Um, and I think I always knew that I wanted to build something. And then in school, I was good at math and physics. So that led into engineering. So that was sort of my path as a child. Yeah, cool. And at what point did you realize that, okay, there's engineering, but that's such a broad thing from like developing a bit of plastic that holds up the microphones we're using to building bridges and mines and obviously spacecrafts as well. So when did you decide to go into what I assume is almost the most like technical and like, you know, nuanced version of of that which is sending things into outer space yeah um so in high school i went to architecture camp um i don't know that that's something that everybody does in high school going to fun camps like that but that's what i did because i thought i wanted to be an architect uh i really liked drawing in addition to building things so i thought that that would be a great combination of that but when i went to architecture camp i found that it was too much art Mm. and not enough math right (laughs) and i i do like some art but honestly at the end of the day i do like more math um and so then i sort of fell into civil engineering which is engineering more so than drawing you know houses and buildings um so i started out in civil engineering in college that was my first semester and after the first semester that i had some intro to civil engineering where we learned about roads and underground tunnels and dams um and i always have to to qualify this by saying i'm sorry if there's a civil engineer listening but i didn't personally find it very exciting and so what i did when i got home from that semester of college is i sat down with my mom and i really credit my mother to a lot of my intellectual paths she was a was a teacher um and nobody in my family is an engineer either um but i remember she really encouraged me to follow these certain paths, even though she didn't know much about them either. Mm. And I remember I got home after that first semester and I told her, hey, I'm not really into this. I, I still like parts of it and I like my math and physics classes, but I don't know that I really want to build roads and underground tunnels and dams and things like that. And so what we did is we pulled up the engineering school catalog and looked at all of the other engineering degrees. Um, and Also, that semester, I had been reading some Stephen Hawking books, so I was getting more interested in space, right? Right. So while I hadn't been super interested in space as a five, six, seven, eight, ten-year-old, I was starting to get more interested in space as a late teenager. And so when I noticed that the university I was at had a really great aerospace engineering program, I immediately transferred. They accepted my transfer. And so from the age of 19 on, I was in an aerospace engineering curriculum and there I've stayed. Hmm. Great. And I, I imagine NASA has thousands of employees. It sounds like it would be a prestigious thing to graduate and have marks that are good enough to, or grades good enough to get in to NASA. Is it competitive? Is, is it just that if you're good at your job, there's pretty much work for you there because they're so big? Or how exactly does that work as far as landing a spot in the company? Yeah. So my story personally, um, is that NASA JPL has about 6,000 people, right? So NASA as a whole has, you know, 
tens of thousands of mm. people. And I can't speak to all of the other NASA centers, but uh, NASA JPL in particular does college recruiting. And I did my bachelor's at Georgia Tech. And so they would actually come to various universities like Georgia Tech and several others throughout the nation in person to do career fairs. And they came to a career fair there. And I, that's when I got in the interview process. And as far as grades, I think they have a bare minimum of a 3.0 which to some people might sound low, right? You might think, oh, a NASA engineer should have a 4.0. <laughs> um, but to be honest, for those of you listening who haven't gone through an engineering Bachelor of Science degree, um, there are people that get 4.0s, but some of these schools are very ha- hard and it's very hard to get a 4.0. Um, I had classes where averages on tests were a 30 out of 100. Because wow. they would curve you and you'd basically like fail the test and everyone would and they would curve you up. So the minimum at JPL was a 3.0, but of course they prefer something higher than that. I think I graduated with a 3.3. Um, but in addition to that, the things that they liked seeing was that I did an internship at NASA Ames Research Center and I did really well there. Um and then I was able to have my mentor there speak well for me on my behalf. So I was also part of the NASA family. I did well there and had good recommendations. Mm. Um, and in addition to that, a couple of my professors and teaching assistants at Georgia Tech also worked at JPL. So it's, yes, I had good grades. I got the right degree. I went to a good school. But it's also just like any other job. Yeah. <laughs> I knew the right people. Yeah, right. Cool. And at the end of the day, that's sort of what set me apart from other people. Okay. And I'm curious, the actual work itself, right? It, it sounds really, as I said, technical and it's there's such high stakes. There's so much money involved, obviously. How much pressure is there on people to get things right? Um, and how much of that is reliant on the systems that have been put in place already so that there's not so much human error involved and it's like it's it's not just do i myself personally have the ability to send a man or a woman into space or a rocket into space but this software that's been designed by someone before me is going to take a lot of the the hard work out of it for me yeah so at nasa jpl we have been developing spacecrafts since the 1950s i think Um, So there's a lot of heritage. And so we do have a lot of systems in place and a lot of design principles and requirements that are inherited over years and years and years and lessons learned. So a big thing that we do is lessons learned. So there have been mistakes, mishaps, issues in the past where things didn't go right. I mean, do a quick Google search of spacecrafts that didn't make it. Mm -hmm. um, And and you can find those. But what we do is we learn from those lessons. And then there's always an investigative board that um, really researches those issues. And then we get that feedback in and feed those into our design process and our testing process. So one of the biggest things that I'm doing right now in the phase of development that we're in is that we're sort of near the end of the design phase and starting to test things. And so we have a huge testing campaign to catch as many of those errors as we can. So the human mistakes don't Mm -hmm. find their way into actually when we launch the spacecraft or get into space. Yeah, right. And I mean, if you can touch on that as well, like how much pressure do you actually feel to be on your best game and... and like not make any mistakes or is it does it feel like it's almost impossible to make a mistake because of the systems that are in place and the people that have to approve things it's definitely not impossible to make <laughs> a mistake it's 
entirely possible. Yeah. I think there is pressure. Um, I wouldn't say that I like feel pressure, right? Mm -hmm. I think that I work with a lot of great people who are all really smart, that when there is a mistake, it's not one person's fault. I mean, usually, I mean, I guess sometimes there's the person at the command center that maybe sends up the wrong command, but then it's, it's a training issue. Why did that person not know about that command to send? So you can never really pinpoint this is this person's fault, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's maybe this was the issue and these teams should have done something differently. Um, and so there's that aspect is there, there are all these checks and balances when we make a design change or a requirement change. So many people have to approve it, which is sort of exhausting at times when you want to make quick changes, you can't do that because you need all these approvals when you're doing a test campaign. Um, other people are in there checking the test data, so you can't really have these mistakes slip through. Um, so it's really like a common core team that we have all looking at this stuff. So I wouldn't say I feel super pressured because I'm surrounded by a bunch of smart people. And we have, like you said, all these systems in place mm. that are helping us. But there is always that risk that something could go wrong, and we have to plan for those. So the biggest thing we do is we know that something will go wrong. And that's a big part of the fall protection job as you expect something to go wrong. And so that's the really fun part about my new role is that we think, hey, what can everybody mess up? Mm. And how can we design the spacecraft to protect itself from that when people inevitably mess up? Yeah, just like talking to you and having talked to like a lot of people who work in like video game development, I, I can see all these like comparisons and like similarities amongst like the pro the process of like, anticipating problems before they arrive and it's all in the preparation it's all in the coding and stuff before it gets to the to the end product do you see that as well as someone with with an interest in games yeah exactly i so yes i am a big gamer uh it's probably one of my favorite hobbies um and i have a couple of friends in development as well and there are a lot of similarities right just as they launch a video game we launch a spacecraft mm. and you know they might do day one updates on a launch yeah. video game and we're still updating <laughs> software after the spacecraft is oh, going wow. into space so similar things like that and we do have test campaigns similar to them um and you know it's a big complicated piece of software similar to games uh, so there is a lot of that i think you know the main difference is that um we have a piece of hardware that is thousands and thousands of miles away <laughs> and we can't touch it. Um, yeah. So that, that, that's the big difference. But there are a lot of similarities, especially on the, the software aspect. Yeah, that, that patch analogy is interesting. I just assumed that uh, once you send a, a ship out or a, a shuttle out, it's like... There it goes. <laughs> but nope. uh, yeah, that's cool. So all the hardware is, of course, complete yeah. <laughs> when you launch it. Um, but the software isn't, you know, the, the core software, of course, is there. And even a lot of the um, additional software is there. But there are still updates that are being made. For example, Mars 2020 just mm. launched a month ago and is on its way to Mars right now. And the team there is working on software updates that will work when the rover is on the surface of Mars. So, of course, the software that was needed for launch was there and the software that's needed for cruise to Mars is there, but maybe the software um, for actual surface operations is still being worked on. Right. Now, we all know the expression, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to blah, 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 blah. You're literally a rocket scientist as far as I'm concerned. So how does it feel for that to kind of be like the baseline standard for a smart person? 
the the <laughs> one of my professors in college would always say because that that's the running joke that people say right but he would always say it's not brain surgery right. so there's always <laughs> something else you can compare it to because i could not be a brain surgeon um totally not uh the other thing so you know that that phrase comes up all the time we got a new dog we rescued a dog last week my partner and i and we're currently watching a master class on how to train your dog Mm -hmm. and the guy literally said it's not rocket science on training your dog and then my wife looks at me as like ah but if it was you could do it and i'm like okay (laughs) um but yeah so there's there that is a thing and then um but i like to tell people you know I think any job has its challenges and every job is hard. Mm. And um, and then if people can bear with me while I get super technical, like, am I a rocket scientist? <laughs> like, I don't design rockets. I design spacecraft hardware. I don't even work on the propulsion system. So then if people can bear with me when right. I get a little <laughs> bit technical and don't glaze over, then I explain that to them. Very good. Have you seen uh, the Netflix series Space Force at all? Oh, I watched like the first two episodes um, <laughs> and unfortunately didn't get much further. Yeah. I was curious how accurate the uh, portrayal of the kind of the engineers not and very. The scientists is. <laughs> not very. <laughs> not not really. Um, I thought it was a cute show, but mm. I, I think, you know, just like a rocket blowing up on the pad because someone high up wants to launch it that day when the weather's bad. I think that happened in the first or second episode, right? Yeah. Where Steve Carell was like, I'm going to launch it today to show off to these people. And I don't care that the weather's bad. And then he lines up these scientists and engineers and they're all like, the weather's bad. The weather's bad. No, 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 you can't do this. And he does it anyway. Like that would never happen. Mm, yeah. Um, and even if people listening watched the NASA and SpaceX launch, I think it was two months ago now where they sent two uh, astronauts to the International Space Station from U.S. soil for the first time in about 10 years. Um, the weather was bad on the first attempt, and they scrubbed the launch for that day. Like, So I think the portrayal of one guy gets to go in and like say things mm. and dictate stuff that happens is just not true. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Just had to ask. I found yeah, it. It's, it's it's quite funny. It's quite ridiculous, as as you point out. Like sending a chimp and a, a dog up into space in today and in today's day and age seems kind of crazy, especially since I know, I know we did it in like the fifties and and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. Um. So the the other thing I guess I wanted to touch on was NASA itself. Like, what's it like? to be part of that kind of team that, that you're in, you know, with some of the most presumably brilliant minds in the country, if not the world, and working on these projects that, as you said, like you've, you're sending a rocket to Jupiter. You've, you've worked on some previous operations, I think, involving like surveying Saturn and that kind of thing. Is that mm-hmm. right? Like what's it yeah. just like to be part of those teams and part of these projects that I'm sure everyone that you, if you ever talk to about them would have, at least some interest in it's really cool to be a part of plain and simple i mean if i were to just give you one sentence mm-hmm. that would be it um i work with really smart people back when we used to go into lab so i i actually got hired on at jpl back in 2013 directly out of college and i worked there until 2018 and then i moved uh, to the netherlands for about two years and i just moved back and rejoined JPL. And now I don't go into the office at all, like we were talking earlier. But back when we did go to lab, when I was at JPL previously, it was also really inspiring just to drive up to the gate and have these really nice NASA logos and 
the security greet you and have to like show your badge when you get in and the lab itself is very cool um really cool pictures of space everywhere and just it's really a nice environment physically um and then of course the people are all really great the really a good thing that they did as well is they'd have either weekly or monthly talks that you could go and listen in and so i could go to the auditorium and listen about this other spacecraft or a scientist talk about this certain thing so it's really like being a part of a university environment hmm. right where i have my project that i can be a quote-unquote expert on that project and my role within that project but i have the opportunity to go and hear other people speak about their projects and other things that I don't know much about. And so that's a really great environment to be a part of. And really being a part of the NASA family is is really great as well. You know, just seeing, you know, like I was talking about earlier, the SpaceX and NASA launch two months ago. Um, JPL has really not too much to do with that at all. We don't do human space flight at JPL, but still that's part of the family and we wish them all the best. Mm. Um, so it's a really great community to be a part of. And NASA in general, like I don't know, I, I don't follow space culture too closely, but um, it seems to kind of ebb and flow as far as like the general public interest. And I've noticed lately, you can go into a, like a, a, a mall and see like shops selling NASA t-shirts, yeah. logo t-shirts and caps and stuff. And I don't remember that, ever seeing that like when I was a kid. Do you think like NASA has been branding itself or is there just like because of the, the Mars missions and this kind of thing, there's just a bit more general interest in NASA and space and that kind of thing? So I have 100% noticed the same thing. I went to Target a couple of yeah. weeks ago and I got some really great NASA t-shirts that are maybe even cooler than some of the ones that I find like on lab. Um, so I, I noticed that and then I noticed just people walking around wearing NASA branded gear and i i my assumption is that they don't work for nasa they just bought this cool t-shirt <laughs> yeah. somewhere you should ask them you should ask them about like <laughs> yeah, rocket right. propulsion hey, i work there do you work there <laughs> what's what section do you work in yeah. um yeah but i remember as a kid i don't remember it being like that big either and it does ebb and flow like you said i don't think that at least as far as i know of course there is an entire media department that mm. could have been orchestrating all of this <laughs> And I have no idea, but I don't think it was really a huge concerted effort to get it out into the public. But they have been better about, um, like when I was on Cassini, the Saturn program that you were talking about, uh, when we crashed Cassini into Saturn back in 2017 and ended its mission, there was a big media effort there to really get a lot of videos on YouTube. And I did a couple of video interviews for them and was on National Geographic. And so there was a big media presence in that. And then hmm. same with Mars 2020 just a few weeks ago. So I think they're um, doing much better with public outreach in that respect. Um, but I think it also has a lot to do with honestly enter the entertainment industry right so all of these these hollywood um people are making these space movies and so then people that maybe aren't as interested in the technical aspects but they mm. go to the movies and they see these cool movies um then they get more interested especially if the movies are are you know better than others right are more realistic right um, so I think that has a lot to do with it. And then I think also when the space shuttle program ended and we stopped sending humans to space from the United States with NASA, a lot of people thought that NASA shut down, which was never the case. Mm. We just weren't sending humans to space. Um, and then when 
we started showing all of the other stuff that we were doing. I think people started to get interested in that. And now, especially since we're now sending humans back to space, that is, of course, really high profile. And so people are more interested again as well. Yeah, I'm curious about the movies as well. Like we mentioned Space Force before. And I I wonder, are there films you watch that do get it right, that do realistically portray either the work that you do or the work that you're familiar with, um, stories that you've heard? Uh, I know like a movie that I re- that really captured my attention was Hidden Figures about the women that were involved in, you know, those those early projects and having to crunch the numbers and get it right. And obviously that's quite different to now because you have so much evolution in the software and processes. But is, is there a couple of movies that have really captured your interest from that perspective? Yeah, I think Hidden Figures, as far as I can think, is probably the best example of getting it right. Because it's it's a historical movie and it's not some mm-hmm. like science fiction futuristic weird movie, but um, they got it right. You know, they portrayed um, a voice that needed to be portrayed, and they also captured what we actually do correctly. Um, so that is uh, probably the best example. Another good example is The Martian. So even though that goes more right. into the science fiction area, it doesn't go too far. I love science fiction. Yeah. Let's just get that out there. But as far as representing what we do correctly, I think The Martian did a really good job as well. Um, and they actually, a lot of the people that worked on that movie and the author um, and even Matt Damon himself came up to JPL and did research there um, and, and talked to engineers and got to really know about the people and sort of what how they should act, mm. you know, and what should be in the story. So I think the amount of research that people do really plays a big part in that. Yeah, right. So what you're telling me is Star Wars, not realistic. Not very, but still really cool. I love Star Wars and I, all except for the original, the, not the original, the early 2000s movies. I've seen all of them in the movie theaters recently. Very cool. All right. So I'm interested, obviously we've been talking about the work you do, but it's pretty rare to have someone from NASA here. So I just have to kind of ask you questions in general about space and, and NASA and what do you think is the difference between what you you guys are able to do and these kind of private companies you see popping up that want to send people into space or to colonize moons and planets and, and all this kind of thing? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing is that I, I can't, of course, speak for NASA, mm-hmm. which I will not do. But for myself, <laughs> like, that's awesome. They should be doing that stuff. I think the, as many people as that we can get in the game the better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they don't have uh, certain governmental restrictions and funding restrictions that, that we would have. And so perhaps they can make advancements more quickly um, with more funding um, in the way that they do it in the private industry. And and it's really great to collaborate with them. So again, the example that I gave with NASA and SpaceX um, launching a couple of months ago. So that is a great collaboration. Um and then there's all these other, of course, companies. So Sp- SpaceX, I think, is the biggest one. And there's Blue Origin as well um, that are really owned by very wealthy people. But they get their money in very unique ways and they're able to do a lot. And I think that that's great for the industry as a whole. And how I view us is different. Um, so NASA, I think, is really about technology development and really about um, a scientific endeavor. Hmm. Um, and... I don't work for any of these other companies, so maybe they do this as well. But the way I see it is that, you know, NASA is trying to 
find life on Mars or um, find life on Europa in the case of the project that I'm working on or discover what certain planets are made of or look at stars. And it's really a scientific endeavor. Whereas for some of these other companies, um, it could be a technology development. It could be a financial gain. It could be um, pushing humanity forward, which some of them uh, really do as well. Um, so I don't know that they're really trying to figure out, you know, what what's the sand made of on Mars? I don't really know that a lot of them care about that. So I think that that's one of the core differences. But other than that, I think really the, the having both is great for the world as a whole, yeah. right? I In my year and a half that I took off of JPL, I was living in the Netherlands and I worked at Airbus Defense and Space. And so that is, of course, a private company. And we made uh, solar arrays for spacecrafts there. And so it was much different seeing the way a private industry works versus NASA. And it was really interesting, too, to see the way the European space program works versus the way the American space program works. Um, So I think what I saw in Europe really gave me a better grounding for how nice it is to have a relationship between a government organization and the private sector. Right. So I I don't think that one's better than the other. And I don't think that like one could survive personally without the other. I think really they, they feed on each other um, to go forward um, because of their slightly different goals. Yeah. Interesting. It it will be, curious to see where uh what, what that looks like in like five ten years it's obviously yeah. changing so quickly i'm, I'm curious as well i mean I, it's something that i've struggled with at different points and i don't really have strong feelings on it now but i want to know what you think about there's so much finances that are pumped into space exploration and research and all the kinds of stuff that you guys work in and there's there's been points where i've looked at it and i've thought why are we putting so much money into something that's done because we want just because we want to because it's cool like space is awesome and everyone loves space and there's not the practical i guess benefit of you know could we use this money to end poverty or homelessness and and that kind of thing and i guess philosophically how do you look at that in terms of um the work that you do like do you see a practical benefit behind exploration of space and and it's probably not fair to compare it to like social welfare and that kind of thing. It's very, it's kind of getting a bit political there, but like, I just I'm curious what your thoughts and maybe the people that you work with, if you ever have those kinds of discussions. So I think on this question, I'm definitely going to only speak about my opinion and I'm more than happy to share yes, it. Um, and this is not disclaimer. <laughs> people at NASA have different opinions. This is Molly's opinion. Uh-huh. Um, I have the same sort of philosophical questions and concerns as well. So I think I remember when, and it's still happening, um, uh, a couple months ago when the rioting broke out um, due to various black deaths in the United States, um, that was the same time that this SpaceX and NASA launch was happening, right? So we have this juxtaposition of People are on the streets protesting, Mm. um, rightfully so, because people were unjustly murdered. And then we have people spending billions of dollars to launch two guys into space, (laughs) two two white guys, Um, which is and I think that I think that both of those things are good, but it was a conflict to mm-hmm. see both of them happening. And that's not been the only time in my career where I sort of have those thoughts. Um, and I think it, 
my thought process and my usual response, especially when people really get, you're asking it very politely, but if sometimes people can get aggressive about yeah. this sort of question. And I think at least in the United States, I can't speak really to the rest of the world, um, is that the military budget is much higher than NASA's budget. And so I think, yes, there are expensive things that we do, but it's nowhere in comparison to other sections mm. of the government. Um, and I think it's it's also looking at the good that NASA brings to us. So it's not just sending guys into space for the fun of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're, we're learning about certain health issues when we go to space and study things in the International Space Station, which could help things like the current pandemic that we're going through. We we build new technology, which is then used on Earth for good. So the, the solar panels, like I was talking about earlier, um, we develop, not NASA, but the space industry as a whole develops mm-hmm. really specialized solar cells that are much more efficient than the solar cells that you see on people's roofs. And so that sort of pushes that industry forward so we can become a more green world, right? So while some of the effort that we do may and to some people seem like a fun adventure that's sort of selfish, is the byproducts of that technology and mm. the things that we learn then, then come to the earth and we can use that here as well. Um, but I, that's not to say that I don't have the same concerns I do. It's just that I, that there's a lot of good too. Yeah. So no, that maybe that's sense. a little bit of a gray area for me, but yeah. That's okay. Like gray areas can exist and it's, it's just about, I guess, finding what you need to, to get through that and to be confident that it's, uh, you know, an altruistic kind of thing rather than just, like I said, wouldn't it be cool if we could send two guys to to mars or something you know (laughs) exactly exactly and it all would be cool i think at the end of the day a lot of people that you talk to um you know the technology development aside the learning more about you know health issues and all those added benefits that i talked about um that we can get from the work that we do in space is that a lot of people are inspired by it so while it is expensive just the, the fact that that kids and adults alike get inspired and it could be distracting, it could be whatever, but I think a lot of people enjoy that and we really want um, to move humanity forward in that way. And that's important too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's a it's valid comparison to look at the arts, you know, how does a James Bond movie improve my life? Yeah. For all intents and purposes, it doesn't. It's entertainment and it might entertain me for a couple of hours, but it also costs, you know, $300 million or whatever. And at the end of the day, it's what humans are about like we we want to push ourselves to explore the the universe and we get so much out of the pursuit of achieving something and of um the inspiration as you mentioned of of you know what the arts can do the impact they can have in people's lives in their you know in their head spaces and that kind of thing and i think nasa and space uh, industry has probably got some of that happening as well wouldn't you say yeah, I, I agree completely. And I, I think that that's a great analogy as well, that some movies are super expensive, right? And you can have that same sort of thing as I, this this movie budget could have been used elsewhere, but it brought us joy, right? Um, in whatever yeah. way that happened or brought us knowledge. And so that's sort of a similar pursuit that we have as well. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. All right. So I want to know at this point, what would you say has been the hardest part of getting to where you are? I think working at NASA is, you know, 
quite an amazing achievement and to be part of these projects that you've been involved with is, is so cool. So what, what's been the hardest part of, I guess, your journey to get to where you're able to do these things? So I think once I got into JPL, um, it's just been a matter of learning as much as I can um, and really keeping in, in line with everyone and just learning everything. So that's challenging, right? So it's it's challenging sometimes, like before you're asking me if I feel a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I feel pressure that I'm going to mess something up. I really so- sometimes, just like a lot of people in any job, I feel pressure to um, be as smart as everyone I work with. And I think anyone in any job can feel that way, right? I see all these people around me um, and I, I really want to to be a good member of the NASA family and do good work. And so I, in my spare time, I'm learning better how to code, right? And I'm not a flight software developer at all, but I think it would help me communicate with that team. And I think writing scripts for testing would be helpful. And so I'm doing that in my spare time just to be better. Do I have to do that? Probably not. Um, But it's sort of a way to push myself forward. Um, Mm. But I think since I've been part of the NASA family, I wouldn't say that there's been a hard moment. I think it was really getting my foot initially in the door that was the hardest part. Um, so I think that was really when I was in college. I, I think it was maybe around my sophomore or junior year, I saw all these other people getting internships. And I wasn't getting a fancy internship. Um, I My first internship was actually in Atlanta, Georgia for a very small mechanical engineering firm because my mom was a teacher at her, a school and one of the students had a dad who owned the firm. Right. So it wasn't like a fancy NASA job. It was just my mom literally got the job for me. Um, But that was my first internship. And then I had something on my resume to then get the next step. And actually, to be honest, um, sometimes I think that me even being where I am today is sort of a fluke or a stroke of uh, good luck or fate or something because... The summer between my junior and senior year in college, I, again, didn't get an internship. um, And I'd already worked at this mechanical engineering firm for 10 months, and I wanted to do something different. Um, So I was going to spend that summer working with one of my professors. So I got pretty close to one of uh, the professors at my school, and I was going to do research with her over the summer because, again, I didn't get a cool internship like a lot of other students did. Um, And at the same time, I was doing a senior design class, which I did pretty well in with a team of students. And uh, a master's student actually couldn't go on his internship to NASA Ames Research Center. So all of a sudden, this spot opened up. Hmm. And it was usually for graduate students. And I think there's a couple other bachelor's students with like myself, but the, the spot opened up. And the professor in my senior design class emailed three or four of us. I can't remember exactly how many people, maybe it was five or six, I don't know, Um, and said, hey, the spot opened up, who wants it? And I went after it and I got it. So I was, you know, I did well in this class. This professor liked me enough to recommend me with this group of five students. But this one guy couldn't go on the internship, so I sort of got his spot. And then when I got there, I recognized, hey, I'm here. I can't blow this. I have to do really well for these two months during the summer while I'm here. 
And then because I did so well, I used that material in my interview at NASA JPL. Those people were able to talk for me. So it was really that first nudge. And I think I hear those stories from people all the time who get really cool jobs is Mm -hmm. like, yes, I did all this work, but you can sometimes do a lot of work and really sort of not get that dream job, right? Um, it's it's sort of this path where all of a sudden this opportunity presents itself and I was able to be there and get that opportunity. Um, so that's the story for me. Yeah, no, that's really good. I, I had a similar story when I was at university, like the placements that I was able to get, like internships during the holidays and breaks and that going towards my like folio was such a big part of getting job straight out of university that a lot of people in my class didn't. So I, I totally relate to that. And I guess it, it shows a, a potential employer that you can do the work or that you've been in that workplace environment and, and how important that is. So on the on the topic of uh, giving advice to, to people that want to get into the... Uh, you know, the, the industry, the, the space industry that you work in, what do you tell people? Because I imagine that it probably has come up once or twice over the years. Yeah, just a couple of times. So I think the first thing I'd say is that, you know, you made the comment at the beginning of the podcast that you're more of an artist, more left-brained. And I think that really the, the first thing I'll say is that the space industry is for everyone. There's a role for every mm-hmm. type of person in the space industry. So Uh, NASA has media departments that uh, have people that conduct podcasts just like you're doing right now with me. And you could be a NASA employee doing that. Um, You can be an artist. You can literally draw cool spaceships for a living for NASA. Like they they have these really neat posters and people draw those and um, people make cool videos for the media. Um, There are, you know, if you're in finance, you can do that. There's space law. You can do that. Um, there's high up business people. There's scientists and engineers like myself. So sort of any sort of job that you can think of, there's mm-hmm. a place for you in the space industry. Um, so that's that's my first thing. The second part is, okay, so what if you want to be an engineer or a scientist, right? What if you want one of these technical roles? Um, I think the first thing is... School is obviously important, which is a no-brainer, and I think the maths and sciences are really important, and then going to college is very important. And that doesn't mean that you have to get a 4.0. Like I said earlier, I did not get a 4.0, and that also doesn't mean that you have to have a perfect past, right? So I actually did two stints at my bachelor's degree, and it I didn't graduate until I was 23 or 24, And most of my peers graduated when they were 22 because they were perfect students who graduated in exactly the four-year time frame. Um, And that wasn't my story. I had uh, some mental health issues in college and had to drop out for almost a year and transfer to a different school closer to home. And I did that um, and I got better and I dealt with my mental health and then I got into Georgia Tech and continued on from there. So I think it also is you don't have to be perfect. Right. The, the biggest thing is that, yeah, of course, there's some baseline knowledge. I don't think you could get you like fail all of your classes and work for NASA. I don't think that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's it's not a, a this you don't have to be perfect to do it and you don't have mm. to be in a certain type of role to do it. And 
um, I think it's never too late either to to try. And I think it's a, a lot of the things so I've been talking about earlier too is some of my grades and the people that I know and internships and various work. But a lot of it too is having a positive attitude. At least I think it is. Of course, there are people everywhere that are grumpy and whatever. But I, I like to try to be a positive person and have fun at work. And, um, you know, when I'm in meetings where sometimes people are worried or fearful or angry or whatever the case is, I try to bring some levity to it. And I think people appreciate that. So I think um, those are just a couple of things that I would go for. But yeah, I think just for the kids that want to get into a technical role, math and science are important. But mm. aside from that, there's a whole world of opportunities for people that don't fit into those buckets. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I, th- I think that, yeah, that reminds me similarly of like, I work in the healthcare industry, but I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse, you know, exactly. not a surgeon. I, I do communications and we have accountants and we have, you know, people who paint signs and you know build buildings and and engineers and electricians and everything so yeah you're right if, if there's an interest industry that interests you like even as we mentioned before about video games like you can work in video games and be a lawyer or you can be a, a creative person or you can be a, a finances person it's interesting exactly yeah all right. Um, that's pretty much everything I'm going to ask you, Molly. Is there any like major like misconceptions about NASA or space that you want to talk about since you've got a platform here? People that uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe you're sick of hearing the same questions. <laughs> no, I think that that's good. It's always good to have a platform to, to uh, maybe talk about some misconceptions. And I think we talked about them a lot in the show, right? Mm. I'm not perfect. Um you know, different paths to get into NASA. We talked about all of that. Um, I think I that maybe if I could end the show on a fun note, um, it was sort of what I grazed over before about what is a rocket scientist, right? <laughs> and I think I want to sort of end it on like being funny with that, but also trying to be somewhat educational about that statement. Um, if people can bear with me is I didn't know what an engineer was as a kid. My mom was a teacher and my dad um, was a manager for a shipping company. And other family members were in finance. I have an uncle who's a priest, an aunt who's an artist, right? So I I don't have any engineers in my family and I had no idea what that was. Um, and so I think for a rocket scientist, um, it's really important for me to maybe say what engineering is again. It's about building things, right? So a scientist really likes to research stuff and I'm very oversimplifying this, but an engineer likes to build things, an actual piece of hardware or a piece of software and make something that does something. Um, And I think that for those of you that are listening that are interested in this um, and like tweaking with your computers at home or, like building Legos or whatever the case might be, that's engineering. And a lot of kids, at least myself, I think it's better nowadays with with a lot of STEM programs, but I didn't know mm. what that was. And so I think that the fun joke, while I usually laugh it off and don't go on the soapbox I'm going on right now, <laughs> but you gave me a platform, so now I'm yeah, doing it. As a, a rocket scientist is sort of a funny thing, but that it, it sort of misses the mark right, of what we do. We, we build spacecrafts and one person might build the propulsion system of a rocket, but other people are building all these other parts. Um, 
And using the term engineer, I think, is also a, a very important thing to distinguish that from other parts of the, the STEM fields, mm -hmm. um, just so kids know that there's other options like building cool robots and things like that. Yeah, really cool. Uh, I, I want to know how do people in NASA react when they come across people who say that like the moon landing was faked and like flat, oh, gosh. Earth, flat earthers, like does that just trigger you guys? <laughs> Um, we've learned or I've learned to not get noticeably triggered. I think in my home life, like I can be triggered and I'll, I can vent, um, to my partner. Um, but it happens, uh, you know, I think on the couple of media events I did, uh, for Cassini, for example, or other media events, those people mm. will be in like the live stream on YouTube and say that stuff. Um, I've never met a, an in real life person that has thought that, but I, I think, yeah, I know it's probably a good thing. But I think the funny thing is, is if that's true, my entire job is a hoax. Yeah. That means like all these times that I've been sitting at a console when I was operating the Cassini spacecraft at Saturn, like that was an entire lie. So what is there some guy that's feeding information to my computer that's simulating a fake spacecraft at fake Saturn and making me believe like what would be the point of doing that? Yeah. Like, why would I just be sitting at a desk all day designing a fake spacecraft that never actually goes anywhere because space doesn't exist? Um, mm. So it it just it doesn't make any off, sense. Wouldn't it? it does, right? It's not a, <laughs> none of it's real. I'm just like doing fake things and getting paid for it. Yeah, it's great. awesome, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. All right, last question: If you could do anything and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? If I could do anything and know that I wouldn't fail, um, I mean, can I break the laws of physics right here and invent sure. time travel? Yeah, sure. So I funny, weird story is in addition to the, the story I told about transferring from civil engineering to aerospace engineering and reading Stephen Hawking was that the original reason that I got into aerospace engineering is because I really wanted to invent like light speed travel and time travel, um, which now after reading those books, I realize is probably not possible just because of the laws of physics. But I didn't know that at the time. And so this mm. sounded like a cool job. But if... I couldn't fail. And if I could tweak the laws of physics, I think that that would be super cool um, to either invent some sort of time travel to travel into the future or to the past. And the past is not possible. The future is. Um, or go to other galaxies right now because mm. another semi-depressing thing is that as we go and explore our solar system, um, the rest of the solar systems and galaxies are actually drifting further and further apart. And so we can't actually get to those, um, but it would be nice if we could. So if I couldn't fail at that and could actually invent some sort of travel to those, that would be really cool. Yeah, wow. So can you watch a movie like Interstellar and see possibilities or do you see only like fallacies like that's not possible i see that's not possible yeah. but i also have <laughs> this innate sense of wonder like i wish it was right and a part of me has this magical sense you know i still i love video games i love fantasy worlds i love star wars so a part of me has this magical thought like maybe it could be possible <laughs> um so yeah. there's always that hope mm, interesting it's probably worth mentioning a few people on this podcast who have asked that question to, I think, like Alana Pierce, Roger Craig Smith, who's a huge NASA freak, and like Jared Petty. They've all said like they want to go to space for their like if they could do anything and not fail. Have you had any interest working so closely at NASA with, you know, these people that are doing that? Is that on your radar at all? So... The thing I'll say is if someone gave me a ticket to go to space right now, would I take it? 
No, probably not. Because we're we're not sending humans to Mars yet. Um, uh, maybe I'd go into space and do a quick orbit around the Earth and come mm-hmm. back. Do I want to go to the International Space Station? I really love what they're doing on the International Space Station, but I took a class on that, and there's, I assume that it smells bad and you can't shower as much and like the way that you have to like use the restroom and things like that just doesn't really sound appealing to me for a long-term thing Mm. but if if things develop in a way such that we're going to mars or you know if i could pause the aging process on my body for a hundred years and let advancements take place Mm. yes i totally would i think just at this period in time it just doesn't sound super appealing to me other than maybe doing a loop around the earth and coming back yeah i think the whole concept of space tourism is just so fascinating because it's like such a huge barrier to entry like who's really going to be able to afford it but at the same time what would be cooler than you know just a trip around the earth and home like exactly (laughs) in in a few days like yeah That would be really cool. I totally agree. All right. Well, maybe one day. But until then, thanks for coming on the show, sharing your thoughts and insights and experiences. It's it's really great to uh, to get this insider kind of detail and and, and experience. It's it's not something that I anticipate I'll come across again. So yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much for having me, and I appreciate the great questions and uh, allowing me the opportunity to share some of this stuff. Thank you for listening and thanks to Audio Technica. You can follow Molly on Twitter at Molly E. Bittner. B-I-T-T-N-E-R. And if you want to support this podcast, of course, you can do so over at patreon.com slash weare8bit. That's A-T-E-B-I-T. That's where you can chip in a few dollars a month to support the great work happening within the 8-Bit Collective with all of our podcasting goodness for your ear holes. You can also leave a five-star review in your podcast service of choice. If you want to catch me on the social medias, I'm at Jono himself. And until next episode, keep putting in work.